At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we are turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever is keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. This is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1-9. through 9. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here am I, send me. And he said, Go. This is the word of the Lord. What, what is your why? What is your why for, for even all of this? You know, why did you show up this morning? Why did, why did you sing? Why do you pray? Why do you, why do, you do church or Christianity? What, what's the why that you have for, for your life? Uh, Simon Snack, who's a leadership coach, you may have heard his name. He has this very popular TED Talk uh, that you can find on YouTube. It's got a bajillion views. And in that TED Talk, he, he analyzes particular and successful and influential uh, businesses and companies. He, and he's asking the question, what makes them so effective at getting their message across? What, what makes Apple computers so compelling and, and so influential and so successful in, uh, in their sales of, of devices? What is it that, that has brought Google to global prominence why is it that, that Coca-Cola is the beverage of choice? He, he, he's analyzing these businesses and their approach and, and trying to get underneath what makes them, what makes them work, what makes them successful. And, and the thing that he determined isn't so much that they talk about what they offer or what they do or how they do it and their, and their methodology, but, but he calls it the golden circle, and the golden circle is their ability to communicate the why of who they are, why they exist, why are they there, why should you have an iPhone? They reach deep into the heart. And, and I wonder for us, do we have a why when we think about, again, why do we worship, why, why do we sing? And I, I'm specifically going to speak about missions again today. Why do we engage in the work of sending and supporting and praying for and even going ourselves to the peoples of the nations with the good news of Jesus? Why do we do that? So do you have a why that motivates you and gives you effectiveness 
in your ministry and in your life? Why do we share the gospel? Why should we share the gospel? Maybe it's even a better question. Why should we share the gospel with our neighbors and our coworkers and our children and those who are far from God? So let me go back and ask the question for you this morning. Why? What's the why regarding Christianity for you? I just want to be very personal and very direct about that question uh, this morning. Uh, this three-week series about our motivation for being engaged in world missions is, is right here before us. And we're in Isaiah chapter 6, just these eight, uh, or at the very front end, nine verses of this text really frame out for us a clear and compelling and deep motivation for why the church today, particularly our church at Woodside Bible Church, should really lean into global missions. And and. Isaiah has been showing his encounter and his engagement with the Lord. And, and what he says and what he shows is, is threefold. First of all, the, that we need to see who God is. That's what motivates us in going and sending and praying and giving towards global missions. We, we've got to see who God is. That's the deepest motivation. I spoke about that last week. But not only that, we need to see what God is doing. How is God at work? What does this mean for me and for you? And I'll lean into that this morning even more so. And then thirdly, and then we'll see it next week, our motivation for missions comes from what God commands as well. His authoritative word for us. And, and, and we've been studying this passage with the desire that you and I would hold the, the ambition and the posture that Isaiah has towards the Lord. When God's final word to Isaiah comes and says, who shall I send? Who will go for me? Isaiah's hand shoots right up and he says, here I am, send me. I would love to see among us that, that same kind of energy and eagerness to, to see God in his glory, to understand what he has done for us, and to hear his call, and us with no reservation at all, raise our hand up and say, yep, I'm in. I'm in fully on this. Here I am. Send me. And so that's what I'm praying for and, and teaching towards and calling for us to experience and to know in our lives in these three weeks in this series. If you didn't get a chance to hear next Sunday's, or last Sunday's message, Come next Sunday to hear next Sunday's message. If you didn't get a chance to hear last Sunday's message, it's on our podcast feed on Facebook. Go back and, and get that. But, but we're going to dive now into the continued story of Isaiah and his experience before the Lord, before this holy God. And, and so let's just jump right into Isaiah chapter 6 here. Uh, I'll go back to the start and kind of help set the, set the tone for us and what's happening with Isaiah in this powerful chapter. In verses 1 through 4, Isaiah talks about the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah being one of the most stable kings, 52 years uh, for the people of Judah, stability, prominence, prosperity was among them, and, and things were going relatively well overall in Judah at that time. And yet Uzziah dies, and now everything's up in the air. We just don't know what's going to go on next, and that anxiety and that worry about leadership is there. And God comes to Isaiah in that moment in the temple, splits heaven, as it were, shows himself as the king reigning and ruling, high and lifted up, glorious in who he is. And Isaiah sees the Lord, and he sees the attendance of the Lord, the seraphim, angelic being around the throne, and they're proclaiming back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Isaiah is so overwhelmed. He experiences the presence of the Lord and everything is shaken. The foundations shake. Smoke fills the temple. God's presence is there. The glorious majesty of the Lord is before Isaiah. And as R.C. Sproul says it, meeting God, meeting him, may have been Isaiah's greatest trauma. How does Isaiah respond? What, what comes next? At seeing the, the mysterium tremendum or the awful mystery of God, what comes out? Well, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. If you're there and, and you see the holiness of God and his majesty and unsurpassing glory, and it just shakes everything, how do you, how do you respond? Oh, wow, that was really cool. Man, let's do that again. No, it blows Isaiah out. And he's filled with despair. Verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is experiencing reality as it is. And that's why it's called reality, because it's real. There's no, there's no mystery behind this. There's, there's clarity. The reality is if, if we truly comprehend God for who he is, if, if we come face to face clearly with him and his holiness and his grandeur and his greatness, then we have to come face to face with who we are as well. The, 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 the reality is we have to turn back and look at ourselves and and. The profound thing is the gap between who God is and who we are couldn't be farther apart. John Calvin put it this way. He said, it is certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And then he descends from contemplating God to scrutinizing himself. So we talked today, I think one of the buzzwords is self-awareness. We want to be self-aware people. That's a sign of emotional human being maturity these days. You know yourself. But friends, let me tell you, there is no real self-awareness until we have a clear awareness of who God is. Otherwise, we will just deceive ourselves at every turn. Once we see who he is, as Isaiah does, then, then everything begins to, to come into reality for us Calvin again put it this way. He says, suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his, righteous, are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we all must be shaped, then what was pleasing in us, which really masquerades as righteousness, will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. Isaiah sees the holiness of God the unique transcendence, radiant beauty and purity, gloriousness of God. And then he looks at himself and he goes, woe is me. That, that phrase, woe is me, it means I'm done. Like the curse just falls upon me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I, I think the term lost here is better translated ruined or destroyed or undone. At the, at the reality of seeing a holy God, Isaiah just says everything in my life just kind of dissolves apart. Seeing the glorious majesty of God and realizing who I am and I'm toast, I'm out. God's majesty 
should never, if we comprehend it, should never leave us walking away feeling pretty good about ourselves. There, there's not a human being who could stand in the presence of holy God and go, yeah, I'm doing all right. I got this one taken care of. Yeah, God, you and me, we're good. Buddies, right? No, Isaiah, and Isaiah doesn't have a poor self-esteem. He doesn't have a poor comprehension of himself. He's ru- Why would he say he's ruined? He, he says this because he, he knows who he is. In the, in the light of God's holiness. He, sees, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I just, I just love the sincerity of Isaiah here and how he gets it. I mean, he's really clear about who he is. You think, unclean lips? Okay, man, you're being hard on yourself, Isaiah. I mean, so you swore a few times. I know you gave that up for Lent, but it's not that big a deal. You, know, you told a little white lie here or there. But Isaiah has the profound reality in his head and his heart of what Jesus said in Matthew 12, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, my lips are just saying what's in my heart. What's coming up out of me is just from there. So it's not just my lips are unclean, but my, my heart is unclean. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, Jesus says. So Isaiah, he's just being brutally honest at this point. And he's saying at the point of contact in life, out there in the world, our mouths, the realities of our hearts are exposed. His heart's exposed. He says, I'm unclean. I'm ruined. The idea here of being unclean isn't just dirty. It's, It's morally defiled. For the Hebrews to be unclean was the worst of ideas ever. It meant you were outside. You were distanced. You were estranged. You were impure. You should be cast out of the community. Isaiah gets it. He's like, that's me. My lips are unclean. And, and it's not just me, but with this clear self-awareness, he, he looks at the community around him. And he says, nobody's clean here. There's no purity among us. Not only are my lips unclean, but I, I live in the community of uncleanliness. I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're all tainted. We're all filled with the blight of a corrupt heart. And so Isaiah just is confessing that out here and saying, here's my sin, here's the community's sin as well. We all share in this. And he's recognizing it's, it's comprehensive. It's total. There's not a clean person among them. Now think about Isaiah. He's seen the holiness of God. He recognizes he, his, his lips are unclean because his heart is unclean. And then he starts thinking about the community that he lives in and everybody is in that same situation. Everyone's in that same status. And if everyone was to see the holiness of God, that means that everyone's doomed. We're all out. He says, I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, again, recognizes who God is. The Holy One, the Judge, the Ruler of all things, the One who commands all the armies. He says, I see God and I see me. I'm undone, ruined. Every one of us here should feel that. Because if we were to encounter the holiness of God in this way, that would be our experience as well. It should be. Does your sin unravel you in the presence of holy God? When you consider and think of the greatness and grandeur of God and you think about who you are, do you see the gap 
between the two? Do you see the distance? I'm I'm concerned that we today have domesticated God in our lives. We've made him just too safe. He's too accommodating. He's too affirming. And in some way or another, we've turned God into some cosmic approval dispenser. The scripture says that God is a consuming fire. He is the Holy One above all. Isaiah sees it and gets it in the, in the holiness of God, in the light of his holiness. Isaiah's sinfulness is just exposed. I mean, the torchlight shines in the room, and Isaiah is like, I'm the cockroach here. He's brought to his knees and ruined. We must be careful about how domesticated we make God. We make God in our own image, and that's not him at all. He is glorious and holy, and we're not. We are so corrupt, so filled with sin, depravity, and rebellion. We're just a To comprehend his holiness means we're ruined. We stand before a judge, and we will stand before the judge one day. And woe to any of us who think that we can stand on our own. And yet, instead of being consumed, Isaiah sees something different. I mean, you just imagine Isaiah is like, okay, here's my death. I'm done. God's going to drop fire now because I'm a sinner standing in the presence of a holy God. And he says, then one of the seraphim, one of these burning ones, these flaming angels flew to me, torching a path straight for Isaiah with something in his hand. He said, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The, the angel draws near with this burning coal and he says, he touched my mouth. And he, and he made a declaration. Behold, this, this Coal has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah begins to experience and speak about the practice, the work of God to cleanse him through sacrifice. What Isaiah experiences here in verses 6 and 7 is, is a beautiful reality of God's grace and forgiveness. Notice here a few things about what Isaiah experiences. First of all, the initiative here. Who takes the initiative? God. It's all grace, grace upon grace upon grace. Isaiah doesn't show up and say, well, you know what, God, I've done pretty good, so you can just, you know, take care of the rest. I've climbed half the mountain, you know, come down and meet me the other halfway. Or I summited the peak, and so now I get all the blessing. Isaiah's ruined, he's got nothing. And God sends this angel to him with redemption. He sends this angel with him, to, to cleanse him. It's grace upon grace. One scholar says Isaiah did nothing to accomplish his atonement. He offered no sacrifices, did not promise to be a missionary to gain it, and had no power to save himself from certain ruin. It's just the, honor, or the order of the gospel right away. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. It's all of God's grace and mercy. The gospel, the good news of God is that he descends to us. Not you and I ascending to earn our salvation. He he comes down the stairs to meet us, to be among us, to forgive us. God sends the angel to purify Isaiah. So the initiative is God. Secondly, notice the the coal taken from the altar of sacrifice. 
The angel has in his hands a burning coal taken with tongs from the altar. This burning coal, it comes from the place where sacrifices for sins would take place. In the Hebrew temple, there were some altars there where they would offer up burnt offerings, goats, bulls, lambs, for the, for the forgiveness and remission of their sin. God commanded them to offer up these sacrifices to, to point forward to their forgiveness. The, the altar was a place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied with a blood sacrifice. Sacrifice was made for sin. And that sacrifice fell among those coals. A substitute was killed in the place of a sinner. And this angel takes a coal and he comes to Isaiah's very point of need. He's, he's confessed, my unclean lips, which reveal an unclean heart. And, and the angel takes that coal, that flaming instrument of purification, and touches his lips to show and to say, you've been purified by the sacrifice that was laid on this altar. You've been cleansed by the blood that was shed as a substitute in your place. That should be your blood shed, and it's another's. The coal touches his lips, and the angel says, this has touched your lips. And so then we see the comprehensive nature of, of Isaiah's sin being dealt with entirely. The angel says, your guilt is taken away. I love that phrase. The defiling, shame-inducing transgressions of your life, Isaiah, they've been removed. The slate has been wiped clean, Isaiah. You're free to go. No more guilt against you. You are not guilty, innocent, pure. The psalmist in Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If, if God just had a tablet and he was writing down your sins, one after one after one, who among us could stand? Nobody. But, but with you, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What God declares to Isaiah here in this is that a substitute has stood in Isaiah's place. A sacrifice has been made. And Isaiah has been cleansed. His sin has been removed. If you want a theological term, it's expiation. God has taken away his sin, removed it away from him. His guilt is no longer held against him. He's forgiven. But then the angel says something else. He says, your sin is atoned for. That is to say, the penalty for your sin has been served. God is righteous and he is just. Sin must be punished. God wouldn't be just if he didn't punish sin. He wouldn't be good if he didn't rightly deal with evil. And how is that done for Isaiah? Through a substitutionary sacrifice. Another stood in his place. That's how God does it for us. Another stands in our place and takes our penalty. What is the wages of sin, Scripture says, Romans? Death. And who are the sinners? Let's all raise our hands. <laughs> we all deserve it, right? For Isaiah to hear your sin is atoned for means that someone else has died in your place. And the substitutionary sacrifice, the sentence has been served in full. God's justice is satisfied. His wrath is appropriately dismissed and placed. You want another theological term? It's propitiation. There this angel declares, Isaiah, your sins have been removed and your sins have been atoned for. You're not guilty. God's justice has been served. You're free to go. 
The, wor- the weight is lifted. The burden is taken away. Friends, all of this points us to the good news. In Isaiah's day, he was looking forward in faith. Today, we look back in faith to the good news of what God has done for us. This is exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me. He has come and stood as our substitute and our sacrifice to take away our sin, to remove it, and to satisfy God's righteous justice on our behalf. And let me ask you, is that good news at all to you? I mean, is, is, that, is that really good? Let me just point the finger here for a minute. I told the worship team I was going to get after us today. I'm going to do it now. Consider your state. I think about who you really are. You're vile. You're wicked. I'm not saying this in hyperbole. It's true. We are full of egregious sin and rebellion. We are full of sexual immorality and perversity, full of impurity, lustful passion. I'm just quoting scripture here. Full of evil desires, greed, idolatry. And the scripture says the wrath of God is coming against us. Friends, we're full of anger and wrath and malice. We're full of slander. Obscene talk comes from our mouth. And we laugh about it. You speak lies. You're abusive. You're oppressive. You're divisive. You're disobedient. You're hypocrites. And if you're mad that I would point the finger that way and accuse you of these things, it just gives me one more accusation against us. You're full of pride, arrogance to think that you're so righteous. We should bury our heads in shame at our depravity and our wickedness. We should die. But look, look up. Look up. God sends not an angel. He doesn't send a seraphim for us. He descends himself. He takes on our humanity. God comes for us. The Son of God came and took on our flesh and blood. Jesus stepped into the gallows of execution that had our names on it. Jesus went to the altar of sacrifice as the pure lamb without blemish or spot, and he died in our place. He's the one who's been crucified. He's the one who satisfies the justice of God and appeases the wrath of God in our place. He sheds his blood. And this good news is for anyone who will renounce their own attempts to clear their name and climb the stairs themselves. Anyone who will repent and will take Jesus as their substitute sin offering, that's good news. The word of the angel of God to Isaiah is for us. Behold, in Jesus, your sin is removed. Behold, in Jesus, your guilt is atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Now, friends, isn't that good news? Do you get it? Do you believe that? Our names are cleared. Our sin is blotted out forever, all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for he, for God, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, 
There was no impurity of heart. There was no unclean lips in Jesus. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We're free. We're forgiven. If you've trusted Christ, if you've repented of your sin, you, my friend, are forgiven. You're cleansed. You're pure. Does that move you at all? This is the point that Isaiah 6 is making here. Isaiah is able to say, here I am, send me, only because God has said first, you're forgiven. And Isaiah feels it. He's seen a holy God. He's heard the word of promise, and he believes it. And that moves him forward to say, here I am, send me. That's the reality. Those who are forgiven want to talk about it. If the greatest oppression over us, our sin, the greatest burden on our back is our rebellion against God, and that's lifted, friends, how can we not stop talking about it? How can we not stop singing his praise? How can we not stop worshiping? How can we not go to a world that is dying under the burden of their own sin and say, look at Jesus, look at him. And this is the motivation for us, this is the personal motivation, I'll call it that. This is the personal motivation for us being engaged in global missions and what God is doing. Because God is forgiving sinners. The big idea, God's forgiveness compels us to go. Why should we care about missions? Why should we care about our neighbor who doesn't know Christ? Because we've been forgiven. If that's true of us. If we've been forgiven, why would we not tell people? God's love, his grace, his kindness, and his mercy, if we've embraced it by faith and sense it, then it compels us to go. That's exactly what propelled Isaiah forward. When God says, who will go? Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Because he's a forgiven man, he says, yep, I'm in. I'm up. Put me in, coach. Let's go. The apostle Paul moved him forward. The love of God, he says, the love of Christ compels us. It pushes me forward since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore we all died and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live to themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. He's like, my life is yoked to Christ because he died for me. He loves me, he's forgiven me, the love of God compels me. So it's moved 2,000 years of global missions forward. The love of Christ because God forgives sinners. So let me make two points of application for this. First of all, to receive God's forgiveness. I would be foolish today to say and to think that everybody here gets this. It would be ignorant on my part to say that everybody here just believes this message. Some of you here today are still living in your sin and rebellion. You're blind. The holiness of God is there, and you will stand before the holy God one day, and you'll be found guilty. Maybe you're trying to be religious. That's why you're here this morning. You say, you know what? If if I do enough good, if I balance the scales, if I show up, if I climb the mountain halfway, ah, you know, that's good enough. Checkpoint, bonus points for me. God will approve of you. Again, let me remind you of Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, 
If God keeps track of sin, and he does, who could stand? The answer is not you. Nobody. But the good news is that Jesus has come. He's, for, he's died for you. His forgiveness, he's forgiveness embodied. So today, receive his forgiveness. You can be freed. You can have that burden of your sin lifted off your back if you would repent and believe the good news. Acknowledge your sin. Be like Isaiah and confess your sin. Woe is me, I'm lost. Acknowledge it to God and look to Jesus. Trust your life to him. He won't turn you away at all. His, his, <laughs> he takes the most dirty, the most vilest, the most broken, the most reprehensible sinner. So don't be so good in yourself. Just come to him and believe. Come join the family of all those who believe. Be baptized, walk in new life. Receive the forgiveness of God. And the second application as us is then to share God's forgiveness with the world. This is where the motivation comes from. This is the, the movement forward, the momentum forward for us. If you've been forgiven, share that good news. You see, friends, the gospel isn't a treasure to be hoarded. It's, it's a gift to be shared, and it only gets better and better and bigger and bigger as it's shared. I mean, isn't it free? Don't you just feel like I feel a weight of relief lifted off me when I realize I'm forgiven all my sin. Jesus paid it all. All cleansed, all forgiven. I, I'm, I'm free in that. Why wouldn't we want others to experience that as well? I mean, you know people. They are buried with their sin. Don't you want them to have that joy, that liberation? I don't think we're properly tuned to heaven and the need of the world enough. Again, let me point out, we have been liberated from sin by faith. Are we okay with the letting the world just stay in that bondage? Are we thrilled that we're getting to go home to be with Christ forever in paradise? But, you know, it's okay. It's, we're just content with our neighbors, our family members, the nation standing under the judgment and wrath of God. Does that bother us at all? Does the reality that most of the nearly 8 billion people on this planet right now are not forgiven and they face eternal judgment from God, a Christless eternity? People are dying and going to hell, which they deserve. And you have good news to liberate them. Let me put it this way. And I'll wrap up. What kind of cruelty is it for us as Christians to have the answer, to have the hope of the world, to have freedom ourselves and the good news and not want everybody to know about it? Pastor Doug used to say around here all the time, people everywhere desperately need Jesus. And we need to remember that again. Forgiven people are the ones called to tell unforgiven people about where to find forgiveness. So just two stats here on why why global missions? There's 7.8 billion people on planet Earth right now. 3.29, which is 42%, are classified as unreached people groups. An unreached people group is a people group among their, which there's no indigenous community of believing Christians. There's no church. 
There's no adequate resources to multiply themselves, to evangelize that community. They, may not, they probably don't even have the scripture. They don't even know the word of God. Perhaps they don't, they've never heard the name of Jesus. The only hope. No gospel, no church, no scriptures. 42% of the earth's population right now, headlong headed into hell that way. More personally, your neighbor, your best friend, your sister, your friend, your coworker. I love the song Drew Holcomb and the neighbor sings called Live Forever. The refrain is this, I want you to live forever in Christ. Friends, God's forgiveness compels us to go. Why? Because we were lost, dead, deserving death, and God forgave us and saved us. And the good news is anyone can get on this. Here am I. Send me. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.